Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. A farmer walks out to survey his field. And he sees the long parallel lines where he is plowed. Freshly seeded ground. The lines stretch far out into the distance. At this point, he has put in hours and hours of labor. And what does he have? Lines. Lines in dirt. That's all that the farmer has. Does he have the crops? No, there's no crops. Then why has he done all of this work? Just to get lines in dirt. You, Christian, are that farmer. Be patient, Scripture says, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord, the harvest. The coming of the Lord is at hand. When the plower plows from sunup to sundown, whether it be with the grueling instruments of civilization's past or even with modern technologies, he is plowing in hope. That day, when he plows, he gets nothing. And the next day, after he has plowed, he gets nothing. Dirt with lines in it. That's all he gets. And so he has to plow in hope. The plowman, Scripture says again, should plow in hope. Well, he has to plow in hope because that's all he's got. Hope and dirt. That's all he has for all of his labors. Now you, Christian, are the plowman. Hands on the plow, pushing in the furrows. It's back-breaking work to follow Christ. There is a cross upon your back. There is a plow in your hands and you're driving forward and the sun beats down upon you. There are trials, there are temptations, and there are difficulties that you face as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus. And what do you have to show for it? Now, I do believe that to live as a Christian in this brief sojourn of a life is the very best way to live your life. <laughs> that being said, most all of the benefit that you will receive for the labor you are doing in this life as a Christian, you don't have it yet. You don't have it yet. Christ gives us an abundant life. This is true. He satisfies us at the deepest part of ourselves. Yes, so it is worth following Christ even just for those benefits. But Christ is so generous that He's promised us much more than that. But you don't have it yet. Others think that perhaps we have lost our minds because we take this religion business, as they would consider it, quite seriously. We stake our lives, our homes, our reputation, our finances, all upon it. People know that for us, Christ is the center of everything. In a real way, not just in word, but 
Our life actually is changed because of Christ's presence. We do hard things. We make hard sacrifices because of Christ. And others think we are taking this religion business just a bit too seriously, as if we had lost our minds. We have not lost our minds. We have made a very calculated and reasonable decision. We've decided that we will plow this field now for the harvest that comes later. We've made the decision that we will wear the cross upon our back now, painful as that may be, because we exchange it later for a crown. That's reasonable. The world is passing away with its desires. And those who live for this world, even in this life, usually come to a point where they realize that very thing. All the pleasures here are temporary. They leave you with shame and regret. So, we're letting the world go. And we are plowing the field, waiting for a better harvest than this world can provide us with. But we don't have the harvest yet. We're not reaping yet. It isn't our best life yet. We're standing in our fields. We have our furrows in the ground. We're doing good. We're bearing the burdens of others. We're getting involved in messy situations. We're putting up with annoyances. We're forgiving offenses. We're sacrificing finances. We're changing our future prospects so that we can help others. We are foregoing earthly pleasures. We're saying no to immediate desires. And right now, for all of this, the main thing we have is dirt and hope. This is a reminder that you need. I know that because this is where God has us in the scriptures. And this is the reminder that God offers to you as his children today. You might be tired in the Christian life, pushing that plow the sweat on your brow, you're becoming fatigued, your muscles are screaming, do you stop? Do you give it up? It's not what you thought it was going to be. And this text comes to you today and it says, don't stop. Don't turn back. Remember Lot's wife, don't turn back. Your hand is to the plow. There is a harvest. It is coming. We see this reminder as Paul brings us toward the end of his letter to the Galatians. So let's read it. We're in Galatians 6. We're starting in verse 6. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let's not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we don't give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let's, go, do, let's do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. As we come very close to the end of Paul's letter to the Galatians, 
we are greeted by a series of final exhortations. On the one hand, all of these exhortations flow very naturally from what we've seen very recently in Galatians, the end of chapter 5, speaking of the way that the spirit within us battles against the flesh, that remaining sin. There's a battle going on in believers, so walk by the spirit, not by the flesh. And then, of course, the beginning of chapter 6 said, how do you do that? By bearing the burdens of others. It leads into what we're talking about today, doing good, sowing to the spirit. But also there's a sense in which I think for Paul, these are just some of the sounds he wants ringing in your ears when we set this letter down. These are some of the last things, the prominent things that he wants you to remember. If you forget other things in Galatians, you need to remember these things. And what is it? What are these final exhortations to you? Do good. And when you've done good, do more good. And when you've done more good, Look for more ways to do even more good. And when you are so tired of doing good because it's so hard, then keep doing good and don't give up. You will reap a harvest. These are his final exhortations. And he's going to talk here about using the picture of a farm and a farmer and agriculture and sowing and reaping, hence the introduction. But he's going to talk really about two things. One, sowing to your own flesh. It's very brief in this passage. It's not the emphasis of this passage, so we're going to consider it more briefly. But there is a way to live your life where you are sowing. You're sowing, but it's to your own flesh, and it results in death. But the way that we want to live our lives as Christians, the way we must live our lives as Christians is the alternative, that we sow to the Spirit. And then he explains quite clearly what that results in, eternal life. So let's look briefly, as I said, first at sowing to the flesh before we turn to what it means to live a life where you are sowing by the Spirit. Look at verses 7 and 8 again. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. What's happening here is that verse 7 presents a principle, a broad principle that actually could be applied in a variety of ways. Which we do sometimes in biblical counseling here. We often will refer to this verse. It's not uncommon at least. So this could be this principle applied in many ways, sowing reaping. But when you get to verse 8, Paul specifically has one application of it in mind. And so verse 8 is his application to the Galatians and to us of the principle that he gives in verse 7. The application is this. The one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. Let's look at this application first. What does it mean to sow to your own flesh? We don't have to guess. Because in chapter 5, Paul specifically told us what works of the flesh are. So in chapter 5, verses 19 to 21. Now the works of the flesh. So if you're going to sow to the flesh, this is what you're going to do. 
are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And we had divided those into sins of pleasure, sins of power, sins of pride. If you do those things, every time you do them, you are sowing to the flesh. That's what Paul says here in this text. Commit any of these and you are sowing to the flesh. And we could even add that while there are some people who from almost beginning to end live their life immersed in those sins, all of us begin immersed in them, and some just continue immersed in them their whole life, almost unaltered. They would be described here as sowers to the flesh. There are also, however, those who for a season, for a time, seem to turn away from those works of the flesh, seem to stop sowing to the flesh, and it looks like they've experienced a change, but then they give up and turn back to sowing to the flesh. Jesus would say of such people, I never knew you. They were never genuine believers, but there was a time they sprouted up. You can see that implied in verse 9 when he encourages us, let's not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we'll reap if we do not give up. So what it means to sow to the flesh is to live a life characterized by the works of the flesh, either from start to finish or maybe with a slight detour, but returning to works of the flesh. Now, what Paul wants to point out mainly in this text is not those works of the flesh, we've already seen those, but that there is a connection that cannot be broken between sowing to the flesh and death. The connection is his main point, actually. The principle of verse 7 is nothing more than just this connection. When he says, don't be deceived, God is not mocked, whatever you sow, that will you reap. Back in Genesis, when God created trees, He made fruit upon the trees that had seed after their own kind, such that if you took a seed from an apple and you put it in the ground, it would grow a tree which would, ta-da, give you another apple. It wouldn't give you a different kind of fruit. There's a correspondence between the seed and what it produces later. That's the point in verse 7, is the way you live your life, that's the seed that you're sowing. It's actually a bit of a mixed metaphor here because in verse 7, it's the seed. Verse 8, it's really the soil to which you're sowing. However you view it, the point is, the seed you're sowing here, the way your life is conducted day to day, how you actually live your life, that right there is connected just like a seed to what it produces. It is connected to what the end will look like for you. 1,000 years from now, where will you be? What will you be experiencing? You can tell as a foreshadowing of that based on what your life looks like now. What you sow, you reap. And it says God is not mocked, meaning you cannot in this life sow to the flesh every day, characteristically. Now, all of us sow to the flesh from time to time. None of us are perfect, of course. But he's talking about someone who characteristically, this is your life. 
When people think about you, they don't first think like, wow, that's someone who loves Christ and serves others. They might think a whole variety of things, but they don't think that. Your life is characterized by sowing to the flesh. If you imagine that you can live your life that way and then get to the end and then Christ will accept you into his kingdom, that's the whole point of this verse right here. No, God is not mocked like that. This is a very timely word in our day because of the history of evangelism in our own country, for better or for worse. And we're grateful for the ways God's used evangelism in our country, but there was a tendency in the last century to focus so much on people making a decision for Christ that there were techniques employed that really focused on just that single moment of decision. Altar calls, for example, which God has used. We don't use them here, but altar calls were used to encourage people through music, through pressure, to come forward, make a decision with the best of motives, we believe. But when someone came forward and made that decision, moved by the music and the ambiance and the circumstances in which they found themselves, there were some who truly came to Christ. And the majority, as later evidence shows, the majority of those who professed Christ in that specific circumstance were not really born again. So what ends up happening is you have a large number of people who are day by day, sowing to the flesh, sowing to the flesh, not resisting it, sowing fully to the flesh. But when you come to them and say, hey, look at this passage. If you sow to the flesh, you reap corruption. And they would say, well, I know my life's not what it should be, but when I was 12, I came to the front and I prayed with the pastor and I trusted in Christ. No, you didn't. The point of this passage is, when you trust in Christ, you experience a change in your inmost person. That's what we mean by born again. It's not just a fancy evangelical term in America. When Jesus used born again, he meant there is a fundamental change in your heart, your most essential self and the seed of all your desires. And if there is a change there, you cannot go on sowing to the flesh unaltered. If you're sowing to the flesh, and then you responded to an altar call, or you said a prayer, and then you continued sowing to the flesh with almost no change, except perhaps a little blip where you didn't as much. But besides that, it was almost exactly the same, then the most reasonable conclusion is that you have not been born again. God is not mocked. What you sow in this life, you reap. Now, this is not a matter of cause and effect because Paul has now written us an entire letter to convince you that's not the case. It is not if you sow characteristically to the Spirit and live a good holy life, you will cause your own salvation. No, <laughs> this whole letter is against that. But it is a matter of what we call means and end. God has decided that those who in the end will reap eternal life and not corruption and death, those people, the way they get there is by a transformed heart where they sow to the Spirit and not to the flesh. It simply means that though you're not causing your own salvation in any sense, Christ caused it by His death on the cross, the Spirit by His work in our heart. You're not causing, you're not earning, you're not winning your salvation. But if there are not good works in your life, if there's not a fundamental change demonstrated by the activity of your life, the sowing of your life, 
you will not reap a harvest of eternal life. God is not mocked. You cannot trick God. You can trick everybody else. You can trick everybody else. But you cannot trick God. He knows if that change has happened. If it has not, if you're fully trusting in Christ for your salvation, if you are not, He knows if you're sowing to the flesh, if you're sowing to the Spirit. The direction of your life will match your destination. You will not live this life almost fully immersed in sin without restraint and then wake up in eternity completely surprised to find that you are in heaven forever. It won't happen that way. That would be a mockery to God. Just like the seed becomes whatever it is in the nature of the seed to become, so now we are in seed form, whatever we're going to be later. If in seed form we sow to the Spirit and we've been changed and we live for Christ, we will reap eternal life. But in seed form right now, if the nature of the seed that you are right now is characterized mainly by sin, it will not become a harvest of eternal life, but rather, he says here, of corruption. And that is specifically the corruption of rotting flesh. That's the idea there of a body that has died and it is decaying. That is a description of not eternal life, but its opposite, eternal death. Separation from God under His judgment in hell forever. Now, I noted that we would note this warning, and it is given as a warning, do not sow to the flesh. And if that's where you find yourself this morning, what you need to do is trust in Christ. That's your only way out. Run to Christ. That is it. But the majority of this text is actually in a more positive direction. It is focused on sowing to the Spirit. So that's where we turn now. Sowing to the Spirit. So let's look at verse 8 again. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. As with sowing to the flesh, we first have to ask the question, what does it even mean to sow to the Spirit? Because we want to do that. Again, we were told in Galatians 5, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If you exercise any of those virtues in your life, that is a sowing to the Spirit. There's your bag of seeds. Sowing to the Spirit by exercising the fruit that the Spirit works in your life. The ones listed here especially. But actually in our text, it does seem that Paul is being a bit more specific than those virtues. It seems that he's actually focusing in on the good deeds that appear in your life when you are practicing those virtues. So if you love someone, what does that look like? You do good to others. If you're full of joy, that will overflow in benefits conferred to those around you. And it seems that's what Paul is focused on when he says, sow to the Spirit. I say this because the parallels in this passage to sowing to the Spirit are given. Verse 6, share all good things. Verse 9, doing good. Verse 10, do good. Sowing to the Spirit 
is doing good. And if you want to know even more specifically, well, what does that look like exactly? Let me give you a brief list that Jesus himself provided for us when he told us to love and do good to our enemies. Luke chapter 6, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, and here is the word, here is the ticket, do good. To those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. How? To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, don't withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, don't demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Sowing to the Spirit is doing good. And doing good involves... Well, all these kinds of things Jesus talked about, but we can boil it down really to giving, material giving for the benefit of others, and a variety of the idea of kindness, graciousness in our dealings with others. He says in terms of giving, Jesus said, give to everyone who begs from you. And in our own passage, verse 6, he saw share all good things. He's talking about materially with teachers there. So we give for the benefit of others. And then like I said, there's also those non-tangible kinds of giving. Where it's not a material need that you're meeting. But instead, in Jesus' words, it's things like blessing. Bless those who curse you. Praying for others. And especially putting up with people you don't want to put up with. That's sowing to the Spirit. Maybe the easiest way to think of this is when we say do good, how do you know if you're doing good to others? Are you benefiting other people? That's the idea of good here. It's benefit. You want to sow to the Spirit? Benefit other people. You can benefit other people by your financial help. We see that in the passage. You can benefit people by giving them what they need, but you can also benefit them by lovingly praying for them, being gracious to them, encouraging them when they're crushed down, coming alongside, carrying burdens with them, even by correcting them when correction is necessary in a loving spirit, by helping them. That is doing good. That is what you want your life to be characterized by. Mainly that stuff. If so, then in our passage, you are the one who is sowing to the Spirit, casting your seed in that direction. Now, Paul includes in this passage the question of extent. We all want to do good, but to what extent are we to do good in this life? You know that you can't meet everybody's needs. It's true. But it seems that Paul says in this passage, do as much good as you possibly can, starting with those closest to you and then working your way out. This is verse 10. So then as we have opportunity, let's do good. That's sowing to the Spirit. Let's do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So there you are, you hear this message, you believe the Lord is telling you, redouble your efforts to do good to others, but where do you even start? Life is already full. Where do you even start with this? You start by just looking for the opportunities around you. That's what he says. As we have opportunity, 
Let's do good. And at this very moment, as you're sitting there, every single one of us has a broad number of opportunities to benefit somebody else. There are so many things that you could do today that would offer an immense benefit to other people. There are, in fact, so many of these opportunities that you can't possibly fulfill them all. You are a finite being with a finite amount of time and a finite amount of money and energy. You can't meet all of them. So you say, what do we do? It's as you have opportunity. As the opportunity arises, then you do good. You can't all do good in the same way. Don't look at the good someone else is doing and go, I wish I could do all that good, but I can't. If you can't, you don't have the opportunity, you see. It's as we have the opportunity. So there you are married. Let's start closest to you. How much good can you do to your spouse, even today, by the simplest of things? Clothes in the hamper. You would benefit your spouse. A kind word, an acknowledgement of some good you see in your spouse. You could do that today. Today. You could benefit. And you know what that would be? Sowing to the Spirit. You say, well, that's no fair. I'm not married. I'm single. As we have opportunity. Paul actually says you have more opportunity than those of us who are married to do good. Undivided devotion to the Lord. That's why Paul wished that everybody was single. Because you have opportunities that married couples don't have. It's as we have opportunity. You can go and watch the married couple's kids for them so they can get the first date night in six months. What an immense benefit that would be. You can write a card. You can give an encouraging word. You can at a moment's notice, because you have fewer responsibilities perhaps, be at somebody's house to comfort them in a loss while the married couples are working on childcare to try to get there. As you have opportunity, and those of you who have children, what opportunity you have to benefit your children. When you want to get angry and say something cutting for your own satisfaction and you don't, you've benefited that child for the rest of his or her life in that moment. That is sowing to the Spirit. That is self-control. It's also a kind of love. And the list can go on and on. The point is, there should not be anyone in this body who says, I want to do good, but I just don't know what to do. All of you need to eat. And so in some way, all of you have found a way to get the resources, the finances, the job, so that you can eat. There's no one who's just standing around saying, I don't know what to, I need to eat, but I have no money. I don't know what to do. You figure it out, don't you? Because you've got to eat. It's the same here. If you really want the opportunity to serve others, you will figure it out. Go ask people. Go find someone serving someone and just jump in with them and serve with them as we have opportunity. But the point is, as we have opportunity, let's do all the good that we possibly can and let's do it to everyone, he says. Now, like I said before, we are finite. Yes, we are limited. And this passage even acknowledges that. Because if you notice in verse 10, he says, let's do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Meaning, it's okay to turn down some opportunities so that you can say yes to others. It is not okay to turn down these opportunities that arise to serve so that you can serve yourself. Doesn't count. 
But it is okay to turn down some opportunities so that you can fulfill other opportunities, especially here, those relating to believers. So if you're looking for opportunities to serve, the very first thing you need to do is you don't necessarily have to go out there and find some massive organization that's meeting the needs of people across the world. That's good, everyone, good. But especially means the first thing you do when you want to serve is you just turn your head on its pivot a little to the right, a little to the left, and see who's around. There are so many needs. There are so many opportunities to serve people. And Paul's point is you start right here. You start right here, and then you go outward. You say, well, that's a kind of favoritism. That doesn't seem right to especially do good to believers. We're being partial to believers. Yes, we are. But it's the same way that a good father and husband loves and takes care of his own children first. It doesn't mean he doesn't love and care for other people's children. But if he doesn't provide for his relatives, especially those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Notice in our text that when he refers to Christians, he calls us the household of faith. We're a household. So your first responsibility in doing good, in sowing to the Spirit, is the household of faith. It's the believers you find around you. Which, by the way, is the hardest part of it all. <laughs> you know, it's a little bit easier to give money for an organization helping people you'll never meet. That's okay. So you can't eat out once this week. All right. Wonderful. That's not, that's good. That's good. It's not bad. But you know what's a lot harder? Loving the person sitting next to you. It's a lot harder. Mark Dever put it this way. If your goal is to love all Christians, that's our goal. Let me suggest working toward it by first committing to a concrete group of real Christians with all their foibles and follies. Commit to them through thick and thin for 80 years. Then come back and we'll talk about your progress in loving all Christians everywhere. <laughs> Especially the household. So do good, sow to the Spirit, put up with annoyances, sacrifice, and serve right here with the needs that you find around you. And then, of course, he says, let us do good to everyone, meaning we start here, but we work our way outward. The Christian impulse is to do good to everyone we possibly can. And that includes members of other religions. We do good to them. Political opponents, annoying neighbors, Hostile family members, you name it. It's everyone. And it really is, in this case, everyone. We do them good. We start here, we work out, we do everyone good. That is the extent of our sowing to the Spirit. Now, before we move on, we have to point out that what he has said so far is we do good to this broad category of everyone, but especially within that group, we do good to the household of faith, believers... Now, if you jump up to verse 6, he goes within that group one step further and wants to make a point that in your sowing to the Spirit and doing good, pay careful attention to teachers. He says, let the one who is taught the Word, that's you, share all good things with the one who teaches. That's not just me. That's a variety of teachers from Andrew in Sunday school or those you listen to, etc., whatever. Teachers. Now, I don't know why Paul includes this note. It's unusual in this section. I'm not sure where it comes from. It comes from something in his mind. 
Maybe the Galatians were not compensating the teachers who were there. Maybe they weren't taking care of them. So Paul feels he needs to add this note in to make sure to do good to the teachers. It's a bit awkward to teach on this. It can sound rather self-serving, can't it, since I'm a teacher here? But let me just reassure you that personally, I can say like the Apostle Paul, that while I agree with Paul and the Scriptures that teachers ought to be compensated so they can devote themselves to teaching, to fulfilling that ministry that God has given them, I don't do the teaching here for your money. I wish I could show you my heart and make that very clear to you. It's not for your money. It's not because I knew preaching Galatians would get to chapter 6, verse 6, and I can tell you to give me things. I promise that is not why I'm doing this. This is a gift that God's given to me, just like He's given you a gift. And so in obedience to the Lord's command, I teach. And in obedience to the Lord's command, you fulfill your own responsibilities. So Paul says, for example, if we have sown spiritual things among you as teachers here, is it too much if we, if we reap material things from you? So there's a sharing. But remember that Paul, although he was adamant everywhere as here, pay teachers, he himself in many cases didn't require it, didn't make use of that right because he wanted to make sure people understood he's not in it for the money. But when it came to other teachers, he was clear, pay them. And you know, everyone knows that there are some churches, and it's not this one, I assure you, but there are some churches that think it is their job to keep the pastor very humble by paying him hardly anything. And let me just say, that's not the church's job, I assure you. It's not the church's job. Actually, um, Paul had written, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. And the word used there very much has financial meaning to it especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So churches shouldn't be giving their preaching, teaching elders half honor to keep them humble. It doesn't work like that. Let God keep them humble. But all I can really say on this point of this passage is thank you for being a church where I hardly have to preach this verse because you have always done a very good job of making sure to compensate your teachers. And I'm grateful for that. And that is one more example of sowing to the Spirit doing good to everyone, believers, to teachers. Now, as we come to the end of this passage, we've seen what sowing to the Spirit is, but Paul concludes by telling us what it leads to. Sowing to the flesh leads to corruption and death. What about sowing to the Spirit? Verse 8, the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. I can't explain to you everything that's contained in the phrase eternal life. I assure you it's better than what you think it is. It's better than what I can explain to you. It's everything. It's the harvest we are yearning for. Every good experience you've had here on earth, all the sentimentalities of your childhood are contained in bud form in that idea of eternal life. It hasn't entered into the mind of man or our heart, just what it is God's prepared for us, but it is summarized in Scripture as eternal life. And Paul says there is a link between a life of sowing to the Spirit and one that ends in eternal life. And that link cannot be changed or broken. All of those who in a 
beautiful, glorious future life shall enjoy the very presence of God and behold His face forever, all of them, with no exceptions, in this life, sow to the Spirit. They begin by sowing to the flesh. God changes them. They sow to the Spirit. And if they don't sow to the Spirit, they do not reap eternal life. It does not happen. And that is why we're given the exhortation of verse 9. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. I don't know what's going on in your life right now. You know and God knows it could be very hard to keep plowing forward. But this is the exhortation to you. You want to stop? You want to break? You want to rest? You want to give up? You want to look back? And he says, do not give up. Press forward. Remember, it's just lines in the dirt right now. I know it's not glamorous. Maybe it's not what you thought your life was going to be. Just here in small Evansville, in this small location, serving people, it's not all turned out the way you thought it was going to turn out. You look at the field and all you have for all your labors are lines in the dirt. There may be times where you go to push your plow, you serve someone and then they turn around and criticize you because you didn't serve them the way they wanted. And you, with everything in you, you want to let go of that plow. You don't want to serve anymore. Or you are serving, doing God's work, and God lets tragedy befall you. Death of a child, death of a loved one, and you say, what's the point? Why am I plowing for God? And He allows this in my life. Satan will come along with his own whispers and say, it's not worth it. You're aching. You got sweat in your eyes. You could be living a much easier life. Let us not grow weary in doing good. Because why? Because you get dirt. You get lines in the dirt. No, because from the lines in the dirt comes the harvest of eternal life. If you don't give up. So brothers and sisters, do not give up. It's the sun beating upon you. Heavy trials. The sweat's in your eyes. Wipe it from your eyes and you keep plowing forward. And a thousand years from now, I will look you in the eyes and you will look me in the eyes and we'll say, wasn't it worth it? We will reap if we don't give up.